that, um, I'm going to just go ahead and just ask for God's wisdom as we start the book of John today. God, thanks for your grace. Thanks for the work of your spirit. Thank you for the gift of technology, uh, being able to gather like this. We do pray for the extended family of the well and visitors and friends of our church community who are joining this morning. Lord, that um, by your Holy Spirit, you would encourage our church family. You would strengthen us. You would give us wisdom and perspective and clarity. Pray that you would um, continue to work through us in this world to bless others in your name, to make disciples in your name, to serve the poor and vulnerable in your name, to love one another well in your name, to bring you glory and honor, Lord, among all peoples and in all places. God, we just pray for our extended church family that you would help us to do that and help us to do that well. We do want to pray for those who are feeling particularly discouraged or troubled today, that you would give them joy in you and encouragement in you, love in you, grace in you, Lord. And thank you for those who are feeling joyful and encouraged. We pray continue by your Holy Spirit, Lord. We do ask, God, that you would provide for us a space to meet while our building is being repaired. A place, you know exactly what we need more than we do, Lord. So we pray you would provide it for us. And these different leads that we're pursuing, we just pray, God, you would open and close doors according to your will. And thank you for the insurance company. Thank you for the restoration company. Thank you for Mount Olivet. Pray you'd bless everyone involved in this process of fixing uh, our building. Pray you'd bless them as they work, that the work would actually go quicker than anticipated, and that you would bless them in their work, that things would be repaired even better than before. And Lord, we pray as we open the book of John, as we spend probably the next year and a half in this book, we just ask, Lord, that all you want us to know about yourself, your kingdom, your truths, your purposes, you would reveal to us through this book. And today as we do an overview, Lord, give me wisdom to communicate accurately and faithfully in a, in a way that's helpful, in a way that is concise. In your great name, amen. Amen. Yeah, so as, uh, as I said today, uh, we start the book of John. Um, and when we often start a book, we do it with a big picture overview. Uh, who wrote the book? When was it written? Why was it written? And some of the main themes. This is meant to just set the stage for us, to give us a bigger picture of where we're going and what we're doing. I'd actually like to begin the overview of John or the intro to John by reading Psalm chapter 2, because I think this sets the stage well for what we'll be studying these next number of months. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The world is in turmoil. People take their stand of various opinions against God and against his son. Is God uptight, nervous, feeling defeated, not sure what to do or how this is going to work out for his people and the glory of his name? According to Psalm 2, God laughs. He has set his son above everything. Happy are those who take their refuge in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the Jesus who John presents to us in this book that we might believe in him. I think that sets the stage well. So first question, who wrote the book? The book is technically anonymous. Some books of the Bible, the author is explicitly stated, so we know it right away, and other books of the Bible do not explicitly state the author. In the book of John, uh, John never comes out and says, I'm the author. Historically, it's believed that it was the disciple John, one of the first disciples of Jesus, that original 12, and he is the one who actually wrote the book. There's a number of reasons why historically the church has believed it to be John. It's clear as we go through this story that this is an eyewitness account. It's someone who was there, who saw the sights, smelled the smells, heard the sounds, and we'll touch on those as we go through it. There's this disciple mentioned five times in the book of John as the, quote, disciple Jesus loved. And historically, the church has always believed that to be the apostle John. So one example of where those things come together, this eyewitness account and the disciple whom Jesus loved is in John chapter 21, verses 20 to 24. And this is as the book is actually coming to a close. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Again, an eyewitness account 
who likely is this the disciple whom Jesus loved. The early church, those chronologically closest to the events, said it was the Apostle John. They knew someone, the early church did, who knew John. And their accounts was, John wrote this book. Now, if you do read scholarship, particularly some of the current scholarship on the book of John, there are those who don't believe it's John for numerous and varied reasons. But our view is that we don't need to outthink the historical church. If those who are chronologically closest to the events, who knew someone who knew John, testified John wrote it, then we have no reason to question otherwise. So that's how we'll be treating it, that this is from the disciple, the Apostle John. To believe it's not the Apostle John, quote, requires the virtual dismissal of the external evidence. This is particularly regrettable, says theologian D.A. Carson. So we believe it to be the Apostle John, and that's how we'll walk through the book. Secondly, when was it written? That's a little more unknown. Probably sometime, most responsible historians believe it to be between 80 and 90 A.D., And the early church, again, those chronologically closest to the events, believe that John was in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, when he wrote the book. Thirdly, why was it written? This makes it easy for us, actually. John makes it easy for us. Some books of the Bible, it is explicit, and the author says, this is why I'm writing this. Other books of the Bible, we have to kind of use wise, responsible, biblical interpretation to discern What is the intention of the author? But John actually tells us quite clearly why he writes the book in John chapter 20, verses 30. This is a a big hermeneutical principle, we can call it, to understand the book as we go through it. Why is the author writing it? Why does he include what he includes? What is the end goal? It's a big part of understanding the Bible is to understand why the author wrote it. Well, John tells us, John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing this book that we will believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So for those who are joining us who have not submitted to Christ, this book was written, you would understand who Jesus is and you would submit to his life-giving truths. For those of us who are Christians, this book was written that come whatever, good times or bad, trouble or prosperity, health or sickness, that we will not leave our Savior. This book is an evangelistic book. It's in a book to win us to Jesus and keep us in Jesus. And so that'll be the lens through which we view the entire book, because that's why the author has wrote it this way. Thirdly, what are some of the themes in the book? The big picture things we're going to see. Now, it's important to say these are some of the themes. There are others. And what I've learned 
after many years of doing this with the elders and walking through books of the Bible, is often there's things we understand about the book at the end that we didn't understand at the beginning. And that will likely be the case with John. But just from a 30,000 foot view level, what are some of the main themes that we're going to discover? The first theme we'll see is the evangelistic purposes of Jesus's miracles. John makes it clear that these miracles are not in a vacuum. These miracles are not purposeless or pointless, but they have this end goal of revealing God's glory, of showing the world who Jesus is. So a couple of examples. Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2, where he's at a wedding and changes water to wine. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, this The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. It was to display his glory. Or chapter 9, verse 3, the healing of the man born blind. The disciples ask him a question, why this guy is how he is. Chapter 9, verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The purpose of the miracle is to display the works of God. We're going to see that throughout the book of John. Jesus displaying his glory through these extra normal activities, these supernatural things that he does. And we see in the book of John, the result of these miracles is conversion. People who bow their knee and submit to him, lovingly yield to his gracious lordship. We'll learn a lot about that in the coming months. That's one theme. Another theme that is going to be all over the book of John is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. John explains this, fleshes this out, gives us lots of understanding of this in a way perhaps that the other gospel writers don't. So, for example, John chapter 1, verse 14, a verse that we'll handle providentially so on Christmas. Again, we didn't plan it like that. That's just how it's going to happen. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God the Son reveals God the Father. God the Son, though fully human and fully a man, is also fully God, fully divine. God the Son reveals God the Father. We're going to see that throughout the book. Or another example, John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, how God the Son shows us God the Father. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. God the Son does what he sees God the Father doing. They're not at odds with each other. They don't compete. They complement God the Son is in submission to God the Father and does what he sees God the Father doing. We'll see this all over the book. Thirdly, as the book develops, we're going to learn a lot about God the Holy Spirit. Detailed teaching 
on the God, the Holy Spirit. We don't serve, uh, we serve one God, but he has revealed himself in three. Now, we don't serve three gods, we serve one God, but he has beautifully and mysteriously revealed himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in the book of John, we have detailed teaching about God the Holy Spirit. So, as an example, uh, John 14, verses 25 to 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who teaches us, guides us, instructs us, corrects us, and is currently and presently with us. Or uh, John chapter 16, verses 12 to 13. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Again, God the Holy Spirit present with us, guiding us, directing us, teaching us, lovingly correcting us. We'll learn a lot about the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, one of the predominant themes of the book of John is love and unity among the people of God. Those of us who belong to Jesus from every background, ethnicity, skin tone, language group, place on the planet, united in him, and that we are, as the people of God, to love one another with intentionality and conviction and affection and to have unity. So, for example, Jesus sets the stage for that when he washes his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, doing what only slaves were supposed to do, but serving his disciples, laying his life down for them, doing a menial task to demonstrate his love towards them. And in doing that, he says, John chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. That as Jesus serves his disciples, so we are to lay down our lives and serve one another. He teaches further on this in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all will, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, loving one another for the glory of God is not optional. We, the church global, I submit to you, during this current pandemic, and the discussions around racial justice have not done this well, particularly in digital communication. We have not brought God honor by the way we've been bickering. The Lord is calling us to a deep, profound laying down of life one for another in order that the world will know that we belong to him. This is why in John 17, beautiful prayer of Jesus. In that prayer, he's praying for us. 
Verse 20 of chapter 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, the church of Jesus Christ, the faith descendants of the first apostles, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for our unity that the world will know that we are from the living and risen Christ. We'll learn a lot about that in the book of John. Another theme that develops throughout the book is this idea of misunderstanding or unbelief. While some respond to Jesus' miracles with faith, some respond to his teachings with a heart transformation and following him, many people respond not understanding him, flat-out unbelief, or rejecting him. That's a theme we see a lot in the book of John. So, as an example, uh, in John 8, verses 27, he says, it says, they, the people who are listening to Jesus teach, did not understand what he had been speaking to them about the Father. That's repeated in numerous places in the book of John. They didn't understand. They don't know what he's saying. Or we see it again as an example in John chapter 10, verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. This continual misunderstanding. Even his own brothers, his flesh and blood brothers, don't believe in him, asking him to go up to the Feast of Booths we see this in John chapter 7, verse uh, 2. Now, the the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. So this consistent theme of misunderstanding and unbelief, it does serve as a warning for us that you can see the miracles of Jesus. You can read the profound, life-giving teaching of Jesus, as we're going to read in John, and still fail to believe in him. This reaches a an ugly, uh, I guess, case in point with the Jewish leaders Not only do they not believe in him, not only do they misunderstand him, but they persecute him and come against him. For example, John 8, 48, the Jews, speaking of the Jewish leaders, answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, which back then is a racial term, it's a racial derogatory term, that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They attack him provoke him, prod him, persecute him, and ultimately crucify him. We'll see that develop in this book. Another one of our predominant themes are these life-giving, packed-with-meaning metaphors that we're going to study in depth in the book of John. For example, in John chapter 4, Jesus gives living water. In John chapter 6, he is the bread of life. In John chapter 8, he is the light of the world. In John chapter 10, he is the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, he is the resurrection and the life. 
and in John 15, he is the true vine. Again and again, these metaphors that are packed with meaning, we see them all over the book of John, and we'll take a deep dive into all of them in the coming months. And then the last theme we'll touch on today, again, there are more themes in the book. Here's just some of them. The last theme we'll touch on is this idea of eternal life. Eternal life being life forever with Jesus, but that is realized now in the present. This appears again and again in the book of John. As an example, a verse that if you have been a believer for a long time, you're probably very familiar with. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or again, in John seventeen three, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We'll learn a lot about eternal life, a life forever with our crucified and risen King, but that is also realized in the present. Two final notes, things to be aware of. The book of John is different than the other three gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we'll acknowledge that and walk through that. A helpful way to think about that is this. If you ask four people from the Well Community Church to tell the story of what 2020 has been like, there's certainly going to be some similarities. There's going to be some things that are common, themes that uh, resonate across all four authors. But there's also going to be some differences in the material that is included and the material that is excluded. For example... And the elders talked about this as we walk through this. Those differences in what's included and what's excluded would be dependent on the reason for your writing and on the audience that you're writing to. So, for example, if you are telling the story of 2020 for future medical professionals, to use an example Justin gave us, the things you include and leave out are going to be different. Then, if you are writing the story of 2020 for a group of future school children, the details, some of them are going to be similar, but some of them are going to be very different because your audience is different and the intention, the reason you're writing is different. This is the book of John. Some of the history we see recorded here is in the other gospel narratives, but some of it is not. John fills out, completes, interlocks, to use the words of D.A. Carson, with the other Gospels to give us the full picture of who Jesus is, of his life, of his teaching, of his death and resurrection. I love the way John, one of our elder elders who opened the service, said to us, it's the backstory Gospel. Gives us an insider view of the events and teachings of Jesus' life. Where there are significant differences in the John's account versus the other accounts, we will talk about those. But please remember, and Stan pointed this out at our elders meeting, these are not in contradiction to the other Gospels. These complement the other Gospels. 
This is one of the strengths of doing what we call expository preaching, going through books of the Bible systematically verse by verse, so that where there is a difference of account or some confusion as to how these accounts complement each other, we'll dive right into those and grow through it. And lastly, and this is an important thing that we'll probably say again as we go through the book. As we walk through the book of John, our understandings and definitions of Jesus may change. People paint Jesus in the cultural framework that feels most comfortable to them. Often, which is divorced and separated from responsible, faithful, biblical reading. For some, Jesus is a cutting-edge rebel, overthrowing the political status quo. For others, Jesus is a good American. He's concerned about our freedoms and liberty and security and comfort and prosperity. For others, Jesus is a nice, passive, friendly, love-everyone kind of guy, challenge-no-one kind of guy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus ain't none of those things. And as we read the eyewitness accounts, the people who were there and therefore inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this down for our instruction, our cultural framework and paradigm for what we hope Jesus to be will change. Some of us will find joy in that and some of us will be ultimately challenged to our core by those things. To the Well Church family, get ready to be challenged and have your paradigm of who Jesus is shift in an uncomfortable and life-giving way. Our great God and King, help us understand your holy word. Help us submit ourselves to it for its life-giving truth and help us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, obey its beauty. Give us wisdom as we move forward as a church community to better understand your ways and your truth through your written word. Amen. Amen.